Well, it's great to be here again. Again, you have to forgive me for having to scuttle off right after the sermon as I have to be back at my church. But it's good to be able to finish off Matthew chapter 5 with you all this morning. Now, I'm sure you know our country has a great constitution, you know, a legal foundation when the colonies came together and they decided how life would be run as a nation community. Now, what I didn't know was that not all countries actually have a written formal constitution. New Zealand, for example, does not have a legal formal constitution, right? And we, maybe we look at New Zealand as, well, things seem fairly okay over there. They're getting along just fine with that one. You know what other country doesn't have a legal, written-down, formal constitution? Israel. And maybe with the mess that's going on over there, someone should be working on one. Now, of course, constitutions are written by men, aren't they? And so they're subject to the whims of men. From below, constitutions can be changed by referendums. Perhaps you know that in, uh, in, back in 1967, uh, the people of Australia voted to give all sorts of legal recognitions to Indigenous Australians. Hooray! Uh, maybe you know that in 1999, we all voted, well, not me, but you know, people voted no to becoming a republic. So, you know, the constitutions are subject to the people, but of course they're also subject to the whims of men from above, because the high court gets to apply the constitution. They get to decide what are legitimate and illegitimate ways of, of applying it, and often it ends up kind of limiting or changing what it could mean. Now, I don't know if you guys knew any of that. I actually had to do a bit of research. I read a little pamphlet the other day. It looked like it was aimed at year six kids, but I found it very insightful. Now, un- but I suspect if you, unless you're in the business of lawmaking or, you know, you know, you're a lawyer or something like that, you're just in the business of law abiding. And, you know, whatever helps you get by, that's probably enough. Just don't break the rules. You're not particularly proud of Australian law. You know, I, I'm, I'm not that. I don't even know what's in it most of the time. I just know there's some rules I need to follow. Now, perhaps we aren't proud of that kind of external code that kind of, you know, binds us together, but maybe there's another law that kind of helps us uh, think about what the law actually meant to Israel. Often we live by an internal code. Or maybe there's particular rules and principles that we've inherited as a part of our upbringing and family. And often it's those things that we are quite proud of, that we really want to hold on to. And if someone broke it, if someone in our family broke it or devalued it, it would really matter to us. And that, of course, is much closer to what Israel thought of God's law. Because actually... As we approach this morning's passage, we need to realize that when Jesus spoke of the law to a particular people, they didn't just think, oh, well, here's a law by which our land is governed, right? This was a set of laws that defined them deeply, not just as a nation, but as God's people. The law was not just passed in Parliament, but it was given by God. So, you know, the first five books of the Bible, and even to this day, even nominal Jews... Um, you know, people who don't really actually adhere to Judaism would, would prize and treasure these first five books called the law. And the law uh, would, would highlight for God's people what it meant to be distinctively God's people and to take hold of this distinctively good life that we spoke of last time earlier in chapter 5. So we've been hearing Jesus preaching the kingdom, right? And uh, a popular way of thinking about the kingdom coming in the first century was to abide by God's law. 
Right? The Pharisees would, would teach the people that if, as a country, as a people, if we would just live by God's law and get really, really, really good at it, well, that's God's kingdom coming, isn't it? And so here again on the Sermon on the Mount, we hear Jesus teach what it means to be a person of the coming kingdom. Right? Previously, we saw that it gave us a distinct identity. Right? And so this morning, we will actually see that there is a life that actually needs to be lived out, a code that you do have to live by, a God who does rule over us by His law. And so the key idea for us this morning is that fulfilling God's law is the key to a full life in the kingdom. Right? Fulfilling God's law is the key to a full life in the kingdom. And there's several points for us to cover this morning. Uh, there's actually seven. You'll be glad to know we'll be breezing through uh, a lot of them. Obviously, each of them could be a sermon in their own right, but we're trying to capture the essence of what it means to understand and apply God's law. So let me pray for us again as we come to this passage. Father God, we pray that this morning you would search our hearts that as the law sought to do, to point out where we align with your will and your will for not just us, but for this world, and often expose where we are out of line with what you want for us and this world. So Lord, help us come back to you and see Christ in the law and see how that has a new place in our hearts. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, Jesus introduces this whole section by kind of seeing what the place of the law in this new kingdom life under God could mean. Let me read again for us verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus says he has come not to get rid of the law, but he has come to fulfill them. So fulfilling God's law is key to this full life of the kingdom. And he's saying every bit of it. No tricks, right? No getting around it. It will be the end of the world before a single letter or a single idea of the law can be ignored. It needs to be fulfilled and accomplished. Well, that sounds all right, doesn't it? You know, surely people, you know, and maybe in particular people who were thinking about spirituality or religious people, uh, they would love that. Well, there's, there's another element for us to consider. I've mentioned the Pharisees already. And the Pharisees were known back in the day for being kind of these next-level law abiders. In fact, their name literally means, you know, kind of next-level. And maybe you can think of some people who you consider to be like next-level Christians. You know? So pe- the Pharisees were thought of back then. And what gave them that kind of recognition was that they were so good at applying the law. They were experts in the law. In fact, they weren't just experts. They would often be able to exceed what the law demanded. They could be even stricter, even more narrow with the law. But there was actually a strange irony that kind of came about as they did this. And Jesus is pointing this out. On the surface, it looked like they were being more rigorous, more rigid with the law. 
But in fact, as they narrowed the law, they were actually relaxing it. As they narrowed the law, what they gave people was permission to go around it. And they were kind of playing lawyer with God's law, at least some of them. Now, there's a famous Supreme Court justice that came out of the American Civil War, uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes, and he famously said this, that in order to know what the law is, we must know what it has been and what it tends to become. I think that's a very interesting piece of insight. You know, and it, it's, I think for many human beings, the tendency when we receive a law is to become legalistic about it, to want to follow the letter of the law, but kind of find loopholes around the spirit of the law. You know, playing lawyer. I'm sure you've done this as, as a child, but, um, you know, when I was young, my mum used to tell me to go, you know, go and do your schoolwork. Uh, and I remember distinctly one time I thought, Ah, I've got it. And I just jumped straight on the PlayStation because my mum said, go do your schoolwork. I didn't have any schoolwork that day. I was like in year three or something like that. But what she really meant was also work from, you know, my Chinese school or tutoring or something like that. But that's not schoolwork, you know. And so my mum came, oh, why are you playing PlayStation? Have you finished all your work? I was like, well, I finished all my schoolwork, mum, you know. And she's like, well, what about this and that? I was like, well, that's not schoolwork, is it? Or maybe you think about when, you know, uh, and this is again personal, uh, my wife told me, watch the kids, right? And so I was watching TV, and technically the kids were also in front of me, so I was watching the kids and also watching the TV. Uh, yeah, I'm doing it, right? I'm doing it. Of course, that abides by the letter of the law, but it's actually not the spirit of the law. So the unfortunate distortion that the Pharisaic tradition brought to the law in tightening it, in tightening the application interpretation, they were actually loosening the demand on people's hearts. And Jesus is saying, I didn't come to fiddle with the law. I didn't come to make it flaccid and toothless. I came to uphold the law. And those who relax it, those who help people get around it, they're going to be the least in the kingdom. But those who teach the truth of the law, that uphold the spirit of the law, they will enter the life of God in its fullness. So, Jesus is saying, you'll have to be better than the Pharisees and the scribes. People think they're pretty great, but you're going to have to be better than that. And so here's six examples of how to think about that. The first one being murder. Right? Jesus says, You have heard that it was said uh, to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that, who, who, uh, I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Of course, we know this as the sixth commandment, right? Do not murder. Those who murder will be brought before and, and judged before the courts. And that sounds, again, that sounds fine, doesn't it? That sounds right. But Jesus is saying to those who are angry, who have a hateful heart, and it comes out as spouting hateful words, that you've already broken the commandment. Well, what's happening here? Well, Jesus is highlighting the spirit of the law. Jesus is pointing to the deeper trespass of uncontrolled, unreasonable anger. That if you push it, and you push it, and you push it, will end up in murder. Murder is the final product of an overwhelming, self-driven, selfish rage. And that's where it goes if we take it all the way there. 
But to know the spirit of the law, to bear the spirit of the law, is to actually be heartbroken the moment we see a ruptured relationship, where we see the respect that we're meant to have for one another in this God-ordained design for human relationships, when the moment that's ruptured, we already lament that the spirit of the law has been trespassed. In fact, it goes on to examples, I won't read it out, but if you appreciate the spirit of the law, not only will you not be angry with other people, you'll try and do your best so that other people aren't angry at you. You know, see, go and, and make reconciliation. You know, if someone has, has, has uh, if, if you've wronged someone, not only do you not harbor rage and anger towards them, you know, help facilitate reparations. If, you've, if someone's wronged you, sorry, if you've wronged someone, Seek reconciliation. You know, it goes as far as to say, even if you're about to worship God, you know, don't let the sin linger, right? This isn't what God wants. You know, you might have not killed him, but this is something that we have to fix. So there's a letter of the law and there's a spirit of the law. You have heard that we must abide by the letter of the law, but Jesus is saying, whoever harbors this attitude towards their fellow man has already ruptured the spirit of the law. And we see this again in a second example as well when it comes to thinking about adultery. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Again, this is the seventh commandment. We all know it. You shall not commit adultery. Now, we know through history that, unfortunately, often what would happen was that women would pay the price for adultery whether it was social or physical, right? If a couple was kind of known to be having sexual relations outside of marriage, uh, often it was the woman who would be ostracized uh, or even physically punished, right? And so this is actually directed at men. Jesus is saying, men, if you look at a woman with the desire, with the intent of having sex with her and she's not your wife, you've actually committed adultery in your heart. You've disrespected what God has called the sacred bond of marriage, and you've looked at this woman without the dignity she deserves. Your lust-driven look, that's where adultery starts. Of course, it comes from the heart. And so we have this hyperbole and this kind of grotesque image of the grave consequences to having a sinful heart, right? You know, cut off your eye, cut out your hand. The grave consequences of having those things is that your whole body suffers. And so take great initiative to fight it. No compromise, no secrets, no sneaking by. Do not indulge in hidden desires, in hidden thoughts, because actually your whole body will suffer as a result. So it's a call for spiritual heart surgery. Do whatever it takes to cut off these cancers of sin that would otherwise start right here and pump its way all around your body. Now, even though this passage is directed to men, it's important to know that it's not something unique to men. Of course, women also face this problem. Perhaps one of the surprising statistics I came across recently is that the rate of men being addicted and consuming pornography, you know, that's been well-researched and well-known, but it's been come to show recently that women are catching up really quickly. Right? New times pose new challenges, but the root is still the same. 
right? It's not unique to any particular type of person, but Jesus was speaking into a particular situation. But again, we see there's the letter of the law, and then there is the spirit of the law. There is, you know, not failing the letter of the law, but then when we examine our hearts, we actually don't want to just, you know, not fail the letter. We want to fulfill the spirit of the law. And again, we see this reinforced in the divorce um, case. It says in Deuteronomy 24, if you want to divorce your wife on the grounds of any sort of indecency, you need to give her a certificate of divorce, right? That's what it's saying uh, there. Uh, because, um, you know, back then, unfortunately, one of the key ways uh, women could find their social security was in, you know, having a household. And so well, this was one way of ensuring that women could continue to be looked after and she could properly remarry. Now, again, Jesus was speaking into what is a well-known uh, kind of phenomenon, that men would divorce their wives for all kinds of reasons. In fact, there's a documented case from a famous rabbi where he divorced his wife for burning his toast. Now, what's really happening there is it, what, what the men wanted to do was, well, I wanted to sleep with this other woman. What I'll do is I'll divorce my wife and then I'll marry her. I need to divorce her for some reason. Oh, burning my toast. And, and they would walk around saying, I've done the right thing. I've even given her a certificate. You see, I'm looking after her. But of course, we see how this is a grotesque abuse of what the law has said. It's actually actively mishandling and distorting the law. You're abusing the law and using it as disguise for your adultery. Now, these first three examples remind us that it's not good enough to kind of not do bad things. That's not good enough. We actually need to examine our heart, let it be exposed, and see whether we actually have true intentions to fulfill the spirit of the law. See, the ideal life of God is not just to not do bad things. That is a part of it, and that's why we have that letter of the law. But the spirit of it tells us that we actually want a life where we appreciate where all these laws have come from. The spirit of the law is God-honoring, people-loving, the law is about personal transformation. It's about being a particular type of person who knows God and loves God. And so our very core is to align with that. Now, the next three examples actually highlight that, how to actually be positively, proactively seeking to be that. Right? And so we look at this example of oaths in verse 33. It says, Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all. But shall oh, sorry, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than that comes from evil. Now, there's several places in the Bible that tell us we should not make fake promises or false promises. Uh, in fact, you should always do what you have said before God. And again, what people would do is, oh, that's easy. I will make promises in the name of anything but God, and so that should be okay. You know, I'll swear on my mother's grave. I'll swear by the ravens of Odin. I'll pinky swear. And it's okay if I break those promises because, well, my mother's not dead and Odin's not real and Pinky swears for children. See, what they did was they just swore by all kinds of different things to get around it. And I'm sure, again, we've, we've all done this before, you know. 
you know, kind of cross our fingers behind our back. You know, it really reminded me again of my childhood when, you know, me and my siblings, we would go, oh, you know, something like, oh, who ate that last donut? You know, and my brother would ask me, oh, I know it's you, Alan. No, didn't do it, you know. I, I swear, I swear I didn't do it. And he'll be like, what do you swear by? I'll be like, I swear by, you know, and I'll go through a whole list of things that we both value, you know, the PlayStation. I swear by, you know, TV time, you know. And then finally he would get me. He was like, well, do you swear by the Bible? I'd be like, ah, you got me, you know. I ate the donut, you know. You don't want to go there. But you think it's okay to say all those other things, right? And we do that all the time. Obviously not with those silly examples. Now Jesus is saying, You don't need to swear by all those things. You should just be someone who does what you say. right? Don't don't make those silly O's. Now, O's have a place for bringing emphasis to what we're saying, to showing commitment to doing what we say we're going to do. There is a place for it, and and Jesus himself makes O's and promises. right? But the spirit of the law is that you actually don't... These things should not... it shouldn't be, you shouldn't be doing good things because you made an oath. You should just be doing it because that's who you are, telling the truth, doing what you say. Let your yes mean a yes and a no mean a no. So again, there's the spirit of the law shown there. And we see it in this uh, example of retaliation as well. And we're really raising the bar with this one, aren't we? Verse 38. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Now, this first law would have been revolutionary back in the days. Barbarians would be like, you insult my family, I chop all your heads off. Right? You stub, stepped on my toe, I'm going to break your arm. That, that's how things used to work. And this law came in to limit retaliation. No, if they took an eye, you can only take an eye. If they took a tooth, you can't take an eye, you can only take a tooth. Right? It was given to limit the extent of retaliation, right? to limit and to give proper recompense, right? It wasn't given here to legitimize revenge, which is how people often quote this today. But there is more to the economy of right and wrong in Jesus' eyes. See, Jesus says, go beyond the letter of the law and fulfill the spirit of it. When it comes to our personal disposition to those who attack us, who want to take from us, do more than just limit what, you know, they've done bad to you, I'll do bad back to them. Right? Do more than just have limitations on retaliation. Be someone who fosters reconciliation. Be the kind of person that will live in a way that will bring even enemies to themselves. We saw that in the Beatitudes, didn't we? Blessed are the peacemakers. The kind of people who will live this kind of radical living, who will turn enemies to become our friends, who will show them why, why we do it. It's because of God. That's the spirit of what is being said here. See, the law contained how bad a relationship could get. Be more than that. Show them what a true relationship of love and sacrifice could be like. See, instead of retribution, instead of doing the mass, instead of getting back what you deserve and giving them what they deserve, give away. 
give away radically in an uncalculating, generous way. Be kind and accommodating, not only to, in, you know, when you're inspired by positive circumstances, but even when you're inflicted by your persecutors, by your haters. Now, this spirit is perhaps epitomized in this very last example of love. We started with not hating those who've wronged us. This causes us to love those who hate us. Verse 33. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. See, this comes from Leviticus 19. And Jesus is quoting a popular version of this verse. I don't know if you noticed this, but there's something missing at the end, right? And something added to the end. So it's missing love, you know, your neighbors as yourself, and it's added hating your enemies to it, right? Now, it wasn't an explicit command in the Old Testament at all to hate on your enemies like that. It was never summarized like that. It was always love your neighbors as yourself. There's no, nothing about hating your enemies. And Jesus is again saying, go beyond the letter of the law, right? Love is not about you. Love is about seeking the good of the other, even those who are against you. So we want to seek the good of those who are against us. In our heart, we want to love them. And in our action, we want to pray for them. And this is the undeniable evidence. This is the undeniable motivation for us to all go do it. God does it. See, God shows love and mercy to all people. The light and life that he gives to, to us, he gives to everyone. You know, the rain rains on everyone, the sun rises on everyone. When we don't act like that, we are less like God and perhaps more like the people we've actually come to hate. You know, the tax collectors. Tax collectors love people. They love the people who benefit them. And if you do that, are you any better? What about the Gentiles? Well, the Gentiles, there's a big kind of social, cultural divide. Well, the Gentiles, they love their own. And if you only love their own, are you better than them? See, when we have a love that is self-serving and self-driven, it's looking a lot less like God's and a lot more like other people. And often, as Christians, we rebrand that worldly love, put some Christian lingo on it, and pretend we're just being realistic, being fair. Now, I don't know what your circumstances are, but Jesus is saying, have that in your hearts. Uphold the spirit of the law in your hearts. Now, this whole section finishes with this verse. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Here's what Jesus has been trying to show us about the law. See, why, why keep bouncing between the letter of the law and the spirit of the law, you know? Uh, you know, the law is not just some generic idea of what's good, right? The, the reason why we have to not stop at the letter of the law, it's not just because it's higher order thinking or it's more noble if we do that. The reason why we keep pushing ourselves to see the spirit of the law is because when we look at it, we see God. We see the character of God. So why do we look at character behind compliance? Well, not just because it's, it's a nice thing to do. It's because the righteousness we've been thinking about is God's righteousness. The love we've been thinking about is God's love. 
The standards of the law run deeper and goes higher than what is just written on paper. It needs to be on our hearts because the law is about being like God, knowing his will, loving him, living out his way. And Jesus comes to help us reaffirm and reimagine the law. Right? It had kind of lost its way in his time. But the law is about being governed at the core, at the heart of what God has said to be good, of what God himself is like. And so the law has always done two things. It has exposed us, exposed our anger, our lusting hearts, our abusive behaviours. And it's also pointed us to what it means to have an honest heart, a generous heart, a heart full of God's love. See, when we couldn't fulfil the letter of the law. See, we've been talking about this. We actually couldn't even fulfil the letter of the law, let alone the spirit of the law. So what did Jesus mean when he said, I have come to not abolish the law, but to fulfill it? Well, Jesus comes and he complies with the law. He never breaks it. But there's more to what he's saying. He came to fulfill its purpose. He came to complete what the law came to do. The law has, was given to bring out this life under God. Well, Jesus has come to bring that. Jesus has come to bring into being what the law could only point us to. See, the law actually tells a story of the gospel, doesn't it? I talked about anger. God had a righteous anger, didn't he? We in our sin deserve God's righteous anger. How do you know it's righteous and not self-driven like the things we, we were saying before? Well, his response to seeing us as sinners, right, in looking upon us who are spiritually adulterous, was to actually save us, to reconcile us. His last word was not divorce. We see that throughout the prophets, you know, Hosea in particular. He tells Hosea to go marry a prostitute to show precisely that point. God promises salvation, and his oaths, his promises, always come true. What did he promise us? The same uncalculating mercy and grace that we are called to emulate. See, when they tore the flesh of our Savior, what they didn't know was that it was actually God breaking his body for them. He didn't pay them what they deserve. He gave them a gift. And so we know God's love. God's love is not dictated by how we've responded to him. God's love is not motivated by how good we've been. God encapsulates the law himself, embodies it all himself. See, so it's ultimately in Christ that we come to know what God's law is really about, what it could really look like. And now, for those who trust him, his spirit writes that law in our hearts so that it is truly fulfilled. Jesus confirms the law. He completes the law, and he now gives us this law. I want to finish off with a particular story. There's a man called Jacob Neusner. I think that's how you pronounce his name. He's probably one of the leading experts on the Torah. Uh, I think he's still alive today. And he's written a fascinating book called A Rabbi Talks with Jesus, and where he's trying to wrestle with how Jesus has taken his Jewish law and done all sorts of little things to it. And in this book, there's a, there's a fascinating section where he has an imaginary conversation with an with a older rabbi, you know, one who's long and truly dead. Um, and, he, and he's going, I'm tr let me try and explain to you what this Jesus fellow who came later on, what he tried to do with the law. And he tells him, you know, roughly what we've said in the Sermon on the Mount. And this imaginary 
conversation partner responds with this. Okay, let, let me see if I get what you're saying. 613 commandments were given to Moses. King David reduced them to 11 in Psalm 15. Isaiah reduced them to 6 in Isaiah 33. Micah reduced them to 3 in Micah 6. Isaiah comes and one-ups Micah again and then reduces it to 2 in Isaiah 56. Amos comes and reduces it to 1. Maybe Habakkuk has got it right. You know, for the righteous shall live by faith. Is that what Jesus is doing? Is he, is he kind of distilling all of these things into one? Or he Newsom says, uh, you know, kind of, but not really. And so the rabbi responds, oh, well, what, what, is, what has he done? Has he added anything, you know, to it? Uh, not really. Has he left anything out? Uh, not really. So what's changed? He added himself. That's what's changed. He added himself. Jesus didn't get rid of any of the law. He didn't distort any of it. What he came to bring was himself. He embodies the law. He completes the law. He fulfills the law. And he lets us live out the law day by day. It's a challenging word, isn't it? That last verse, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. I want to leave us with this as we finish. Knowing that Jesus fulfills the law perfectly, that he fulfills the law perfectly, means we have patience. See, we wait upon God's work, and so we keep praying. The Sermon on the Mount has heaps of stuff about praying. We won't be going, well, I won't be going through it with you, but I'm sure you know about it. To pray for God's kingdom to come. That is our first response to knowing that Jesus fulfills the law perfectly. But for Jesus fulfilling the law also means pay, uh, practice, right? It means patience, but it also means practice. That we know we've been given a new heart. We know our heart gravitates towards the spirit of the law. And so we get to practice it. We actually get to live out the things we've seen. We get to not be reactive and belittling the law. We actually get to be proactive and seek to live out the spirit of the law. So let's all go out this morning and think about areas of our lives where we can do that. Let me pray for you guys as we do so. Father God, we give you great thanks that Christ came to complete the law such that it would no longer just be a, a, a damning piece of evidence that would be weighing on each one of our shoulders and hearts. Instead, it would point us to Christ. It would point to him how he was perfect in the law, but how he also perfectly fulfilled the law. Lord, we know that there's so many things that that continue to tug at our hearts, that make us want to distort your word, that make us hide from your ways. There's so many ways where we can be hypocritical, where we can pretend that you don't see how we are messing things up, how we're trying to jump through loopholes. Lord, help us be honest this morning and come back to you and know that you are gracious, that you, in the gospel, you have not repaid us what we deserve. Instead, you have given us grace and mercy. And so, Lord, help us receive this gift with open hands today. Lord, help us, therefore, be patient, patient on your work, you continue to work on our hearts day in, day out, scenario by scenario, hurdle by hurdle. Help us wait upon you and know that you will continue to carry us through this journey. But Lord, help us also be diligent practitioners. Help us be emboldened with knowing that you want us to live out this law, 
to fully capture the spirit of it and seek to speak it out to not only our friends and family, but those who persecute us, those who hate us, those who take from us. So Lord, again, help us be distinctive kingdom people who wait on you and who will practice in the meantime. In your son's name we pray. Amen.